Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Well, welcome to the third episode of the Liberty Cafe podcast. Glad to have you here with me. And we're calling this edition Worldly Ways. You know, I like to say sometimes that I'm a professional policy analyst and an amateur theologian. And, and over the 20 years or so that those two passions of mine have come together, I've noticed more and more how people who call themselves conservatives in the political realm and, and or people who call themselves evangelicals in the church world can't see what liberalism is doing to our culture. They, they just seem to be blind to these types of things. Now, what do I mean by liberalism? Well, I, I really... And looking at that in the context of counsel that is brought, developed uh, through the fear of man, rather than the the wisdom that we gain from the fear of God. And and of course, there's a lot of ways that we can we can talk about this. Uh, you know, where folks are missing the battle lines. I like to say, or the dividing lines between uh, liberalism. And godly wisdom. But I'd like to talk about that in the context tonight of uh, racism, and, and particularly in the context of my book that I wrote uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Race in America, Liberalism's Attack on Minorities in the Church. Before we get into the substance here, I'd just like to mention that uh, starting this Sunday, April 19th, for I think it's five days through April 23rd, I'll be giving away free copies of my book in the Kindle version on Amazon. So you, you can, if you go to Amazon and just search Race in America Peacock, you'll find it. Or you can go to the Excellent uh, Thought website, excellentthought.net website, and it'll there's a link to it right there. It's the second or third um, uh, entry uh, on, on the website this week. So you can you can find it there. And love to have you download it and uh, for free, and uh, and let me know what you think about it. So I'd like to start with um, talking about white racism, and, and I'm going to do that by talking about a, a gentleman uh, or using as an example a gentleman uh, named Alexander Yoon. Uh, he he's a um, elder in my denomination, the Presbyterian Church of America. As a matter of fact, he was the first minority. Uh, moderator uh, when he was elected at, at General Assembly about three years ago. He's Asian, and uh, he's also a professor. And, and he is probably the, the highest profile proponent of uh, this concept of white racism, white supremacy in, in our denomination. He's not alone by any means, but um, he, he certainly is high profile. And, and I, I watched him give a speech one day online um, and, and, he, and he approached the story from this perspective. He, he told a story about an elephant and a giraffe. And, and one day the giraffe was uh, looking out his window, and he saw his colleague, the elephant, 
walking down the street. They they knew each other. Um, their 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 children played in um, little league together, and, and they knew each other a little bit professionally. And he said, "Hey, this is great. I'd like to have my friend, uh, Mr. Elephant, come in and join us." Well, he does, and pretty soon thereafter. Um, Mrs. Giraffe comes downstairs and says, uh, Honey, there's a phone call for you upstairs. So the giraffe goes upstairs and tells uh, his friend, Mr. Elephant, Make yourself at home. Well, the elephant starts looking around the house and uh, finds out there's a lot of problems. Um, he, he can't get through the doors very well at all because they're not big enough for him. He walking through the hallways. He, he's knocking furniture all over the place and then he tries to walk up the stairs and he just breaks the stairs because he's too heavy and the the giraffe comes down and sees all this and and he he looks around for a minute and then he says ah I know the problem you're too fat if you lost some weight you'd fit in here just fine or maybe if you took ballet lessons you'd get light on your feet I love having you here and I'd love for you to keep coming back but you kind of have to change if you're gonna stay here so Yoon says that you almost feel sorry for this giraffe who's been so hospitable. He's really not a bad person. And he says you really have to look at this not just from an individual perspective, but from an institutional perspective. And he asks the question, what is it about the institution that makes it so difficult for African Americans? You shift the blame and you shift the gaze away from the individual and onto a system. I think in his perspective and, and that of many others, the institution they're talking about is whiteness. And the system they're talking about is one of white oppression. And, and they look at that and they say that this is the root of the problem we have in America when it comes to racism today. And it's what we have to address in America if we're going to deal rightly with this. Where do they come up with this concept? Well, obviously, once we get through this process, I'm going to say that they're, because they're approaching things from a worldly perspective rather than a godly perspective. But I think that perspective is really based on what we would call white guilt. It's this concept that when you look at minorities in America today, blacks, Hispanics, Asians even in some situations, and you see them in less than ideal situations. They, people feel bad about that, and they feel guilty about it, and so they, the first thing they do from this worldly perspective is look at white people and say that we're to blame. And, and at one level, that sort of makes sense, because if you go back in this country, obviously we had slavery for a long time, it was a while back, but it was still very prevalent. And even as little as 40, 50 years ago, we had a tremendous lot of violence against blacks in this country. But that doesn't really fit the facts today. But still, they, they look at the, the blacks, and, they, and they, they just look at this, and you can see that they're blaming not, not just whites, but white culture. And it's not just in America, but it's European culture. Really, the culture that was developed from the Bible. For instance, here is something written by the Episcopal Church. Widespread hostility to immigrants from the Latin America has led to the deportation of millions and ripped families apart. Structural poverty in indigenous communities has led to the alarming youth suicides. 
Throughout Latin America, indigenous and Afro-Latino peoples still suffer after centuries of systematic devaluation. Videos regularly detail the detention and killing of unarmed black men, women, and children by the state. And across the United States and into Europe, people from the Middle East are profiled as terrorists and enemies of Western values. In, in this sense, anything built on Western values, historic Christianity is suspect. And, and that's, that's pretty interesting, <laughs> coming from the Christian church. Uh, but, but that's what it is. But, but not everybody looks at things that way. And it, it's, it's not about... every. Not everybody looks at things it's just from it's about racism, the racial perspective. And Thomas Sowell is one of those people. You may know them. He's a, he's a famous uh, cultural commenter, economist. Uh, he's black and has been working on these issues of race and culture from a, a long time. And he says that the, the real issue here is about culture not about race. He observes in, in this quote, these people are created terrible, creating a terrible problem in our cities. They can't or won't hold a job. They flout the law constantly, neglect their children. They drink too much and their moral standards would shame an alley cat. For some reason or another, they absolutely refuse to accommodate themselves to any kind of decent civilized life. Well, if you just read that off the cuff, you might think this is about blacks white people saying about blacks, but it's not. It's about white people in Indianapolis in 1956 talking about poor whites from the South. Look at people because of their color. They'll look at people because of their culture. Seoul traces this culture way back from America all the way back into southern Scotland, northern England, where there was this culture of sloth, uh, this culture of vulgarity in some ways. Uh, morals weren't the best. Uh, not working hard, and he says that was imported into the South mainly because that's where those those immigrants tended to come into America, into the South. This, this culture was then transmitted uh, through the system of slavery into uh, the much of the black population, and then that was transmitted into black ghettos, uh, particularly up in the North. But he, he points out that this culture over time has gone away almost everywhere it's been. It's gone away from, from Scotland and England in those areas. It's largely disappeared from the south today. But then he asks the question, well, why is this type of culture still alive in, in many black ghettos in America today where it had gone away everywhere else that it's been? His answer to that, and, and my answer as well, is uh, the welfare state. Uh, we see the welfare state is what's perpetuating this. Uh, he particularly uh, points out that the rise of blacks out of poverty was greater during the two decades pre preceding 1960s than, than in the decades that followed. He says, uh, as of 1940, more than four-fifths of black families, 87% in fact, live below the official poverty line. By 1960, this had fallen to 47%. In other words, the poverty rate among blacks had been nearly cut in half before either the Civil Rights Revolution or the Great Society social programs began in the 1960s. By 1970, when they had just barely gotten started, the poverty rate among blacks had further declined to 30%. But then, 
the rise in economic stand, standing of blacks stalled. In 1980, the poverty rate was only 29%. Today, it stands at 24%, similar to what it was 40 years ago and still well above whites and Asians in particular. So so why is that? It's, it's because blacks more than anybody have been subject to the excesses and the deprivations of the, of the welfare state. And we, we see this in many ways. It's, it's paying um, single mothers to have babies without fathers around. Uh, it's paying people not to work. It's denying low-skilled workers jobs because they don't can't make enough money. They don't produce enough to earn above minimum wage or above. It's uh, because unions have taken over and, and forced blacks in particular to um, but low-skilled worker out of the workplace. It's public education who's not teaching children how to think, how to work, and they're certainly not teaching about God. All these things, you know, they, they affect anybody who gets caught up in it. But because it's been pointed especially at blacks, because the, the, the welfare state was going to come rescue blacks, it's had the biggest impact there. And, of course, as we see from these statistics that, that Sol was talking about, it was actually the blacks were rescuing themselves. You know, they didn't need our help, uh, but by God, these people were going to give it to them. Well, that, that kind of brings us to the role of the church and why we can't break this this cycle of poverty. And as much as I, it's fun to blame secular liberalism for this, and, and that's certainly the case. A, a significant portion of the blame has to fall on the evangelical church in America or what's left of the evangelical church. Several ways this is going on. Uh, you know, Marvin Olasky wrote this great book, The Compassion. Uh, well, I guess I ought to remember what his book title is before I talk about it. But it's about uh, compassion in, in America before the welfare system took over. And uh, it was really one of the um, intellectual, some of the intellectual ammunition for the uh, welfare reform that took place back in the 1990s that President Clinton vetoed, I think, two or three times before it finally got passed. And, and he writes this, uh, The model of American generosity toward those in greatest need stressed personal aid in times of disease. Well, that's the op complete opposite of what compassion is, is looks like today, supposed compassion looks like today in, in the welfare state. It's, there's nothing personal about it at all. The, the, the government steals money from us and then gives it to people. And, and the entire concept of one-on-one -on -one connections that compassion is built on are totally missing from that. And unfortunately, the church has just fallen for that, right? They, they've given in to that. Rather than focusing on the church doing these things, not that churches don't do good things, but they have given into this and given over these major tasks to the welfare state rather than to them. And of course, they've, they've also fallen the church, the evangelical church, has fallen into the white guilt, white racism trap. And so they don't have a biblical solution to these things, either through the compassion model or getting to the core issues of the soul. And, and basically, it, it's because the, the church has submitted to the um, wisdom of the world rather than seeking to overcome it. I'd like to close this week by coming back to another elder in my denomination, the Presbyterian Church of America, Al Arnold. 
Al, he's black, he's a physical therapist, lives in Mississippi, and somewhere along the way he discovered that his great-great-grandfather, Turner Hall Jr., uh, was a uh, orderly to Robert E. Lee, and also uh, was owned, a slave owned, by the, the family business of Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest. And as, as he looked into all this, he found that his great-great-grandfather took great pride in uh, working for General Forrest and for General Lee. And that really helped change and shape his view of what it means to be black and and how it shapes relationships with other cultures, particularly in this case, the white culture. So let, let me just read a, a quote from his book. His book, by the way, it's, it's, really, it's really good. It's called Robert E. Lee's Orderly, A Modern Black Man's Confederate Journey. And he writes this, I don't think I have any right to frown upon the Confederate heritage or culture any more than Confederates have a right to frown upon mine. I don't have to understand a person's culture or even agree with it in order to love them. Thus, because I am reconciled in Christ, I can allow a Confederate to be a Confederate without attacking him or her for their flag or their history. And this really gets along to what I think is the problem in, in the church today. It's too much of the evangelical church and all the mainline churches. I mean, they're pretty much gone on this. But even in the evangelical church, too many people focus on racial reconciliation instead of reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. And so they get everything wrong. And, and I could go on and on about that, but I think we'll just close here by reading the, the passage in, in Scripture that talks most directly about Christ's ministry of reconciliation. That's uh, 2 Corinthians 5, and I'm going to start in verse 16, take us through verse 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, thank you for joining us on this week's episode of the Liberty Cafe. And, and I'll just close by saying that those who want to see reconciliation among blacks and whites and Hispanics and Asians and all uh, races on earth need to focus on the, the most important dividing lines behind us, which is not what color our skin is or even what culture we come from, but it's the dividing line between those who know Christ and are reconciled with God and those who don't. And if we focus on crossing those boundaries and bringing those who don't know Christ into him to be reconciled with him, all of our problems of racism will be properly dealt with.